Living with Diabetes, a podcast from Diabetes Victoria with Jack Fitzpatrick. Hello, one and all. Thanks for tuning in to the official Diabetes Victoria podcast. This is a great forum for those of us impacted by diabetes, whether it be directly or indirectly, to discuss ideas, share stories, and build our diabetes community. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, ex-Melbourne AF Hawthorne AFL player and current Diabetes Victoria ambassador. I'm so thankful to be joined on this episode by a courageous, resilient woman. I say the word courageous not only because of what she's been through, but because of her willingness to be open and talk about her journey so honestly, which we're fortunate to about to unpack now. Author and motivational speaker, Tiffany Johnson, thank you for joining the Diabetes Victoria podcast. Thank you so much, Jack. Very excited to have you on today and, and to share your story, which is uh, pretty remarkable in, in more ways than one. Yes, indeed it is. My journey to diabetes has been long. I've had diabetes now for 20 years and uh, I'm a survivor from the 1999 Swiss canyoning disaster, which some of our listeners will remember and some won't. Uh, the 1999 Swiss canyoning disaster, um, a flash flood came down the canyon and uh, in a Saxtonbach Gorge in Interlaken in Switzerland. I was on a Kentucky tour on a journey of self-discovery and as a lot of young people are these days and their rite of passage in life and unfortunately we went on a day that we should not have gone and there was a storm and uh, we couldn't get out of the water and I was washed away uh, quite a way down the canyon and had many injuries. And one of the consequences of that was getting diabetes. Now, as you said, the, the, many of our older listeners may remember the Swiss canyoning disaster. And it was pretty well known at the time, but a lot of our younger generations might not have heard of it. So it was 20 years ago now, I believe, 1999. 1999. Um, so to Put in the context, you say you'd, you went on a day that you shouldn't have gone. Did you know that when you went or only in hindsight where vision is always perfect? Uh, well, it actually ended up going to court and the company that took us ended up um, being fined and were guilty. They um, they knew that it was raining and they'd been warned by locals that we should not have gone canyoning and they went anyway. Right. Now, as a result of this disaster, so you obviously were swept away and suffered some injuries, but there were quite a few people who passed away. So how many people were on the trip or the um, the experience and then how many actually did end up dying? 21 young people died that day. Three were guides. Um, one of the guides, in fact, kept going in to save people and the last time she went in, she didn't survive. Um, there were six survivors that were, went to hospital and there were other survivors on the day as well. So um, there were 48 people that went canyoning that day. So just under half of the people ended up passing away. Yeah. It's quite a lot. And at this stage, you said you're mostly young people. So if you were contiquing through Europe effectively is what you're doing. Like it's certainly not what you're expecting on a journey of self-discovery that you just said that you were on? No, it was definitely not. And it was traumatic for everybody involved. The Australian government didn't really know how to deal with such an enormous tragedy. It was the largest number of deaths on foreign soil at the time. So it was the largest number of deaths outside of Australia outside, in peacetime, so outside of war times. So majority of the people were Australian or they were from all over? Or? There were 14 Australians that died that day. Wow. Right. And I suppose you were... I guess one of the lucky ones or luckier than, than some, unfortunately. How many people, were you there on your, your own on your trip or did you go with friends or? I met my best friend on the trip. We're still best friends to this day. Um, 
I live not far from her now, so which is wonderful, but I started on the journey on my own. I'd left a toxic relationship and had lost myself in that, so hence why I decided to go overseas and see if I could find who I was meant to be. And it was only the day before when I had gone up to Jungfrau, which is this amazing glacier um, just near where the canyon is, um, near Interlaken, and it was the first time I'd seen snow and I was so excited and I saw these mountains and I thought if these mountains can stand the test of time, they've seen dinosaurs, they've seen blizzards, they've seen goodness knows what, then I can do this thing called life too. And I finally felt empowered and then the next day I saw all my friends die in front of me. Wow. I can only imagine at such a young age seeing that happening. So whilst the actual – whilst you're being swept away, so as you said, the floodwaters came down and effectively a dam wall burst. Is that what happened? Um, basically a natural dam wall had started at the top of the mountain where the, and then the flood, um, because of the rain, it broke the bank and then that flood came down through the canyon. And then, so you're being swept away and you're probably watching people pass away or drown or get injured yourself. So you're seeing all this disaster and tragedy happen, but at the same time you're in, you're in self survival mode and trying to make sure that you survive what's happening. When I first got sucked away, I um, I was the first person in my group that we'd been separated into four groups and I was in the second group and the second group and the third group were the worst affected because we were positioned in the canyon, there was no escape. And so the first two groups, they could um, climb out, um, which was still incredibly terrifying for them. But the middle two groups were the ones that when this wall of water came down, we were the ones that got pummeled. We just had nowhere to go. And I could see that the water had turned from this beautiful crystal clear to a murky brown and um, we had to take a jump and I quickly took that jump and went into this, jumped into a water hole. It was about a four-metre jump. And um, as I came up for air, the guide that was waiting for me in the water hole went to reach out for my hand and our hands passed each other and I was sucked under the water. <clears throat> Sorry. And as soon as that happened, I instantly heard my father's voice in my head saying, if ever you get stuck in floodwaters, just relax and stay calm. And so in that moment, I just surrendered my body and just tried to get snippets of air when I could. And um, eventually I was pushed up into a boulder by a giant big log, and which damaged my pancreas and um, broke four of my ribs. And when I, the water was lapping at my chin and in that moment, I could finally see what I was amongst. So I actually had no idea until that time what had happened and I saw four or five bodies floating past me um, peacefully beautifully over the rapids but I mean these were crazy wild rapids and I knew that they were dead and I looked to my left and I saw the bank and it was shrouded in this beautiful green shrubbery it was beautiful covered in moss but it was just too far away I knew that I could never make it and so I had to make the most important decision of my life do I stay by this boulder potentially have a boulder fall on top of me there were massive big rocks and logs and the the force of that water was crazy and I just thought if I stay here I'm going to get crushed to death if I let go I may drown what do I do? And I decided to let go. And so I, I let go. And then I kept trying to get snippets of air and it came to a point when I knew that this was it. I had no air left and I prayed in that moment and I prayed to my aunt who'd recently passed on and I prayed to God and I said, please, dear God, please, auntie, die, don't let me die because if I die, mum won't cope. <laughs> yep. Funny what you think of in these moments. And so, and in that 
in that moment was incredible because I sporadically burst up out of the water and my whole body went flying up out of the water. My legs were still in the water, but my whole torso was out of the water and I was above this absolutely gigantic waterfall. It was about 20 metres wide. And I've actually got a photo, it's on my website, of someone that had taken a photo of the canyon in flood. And, um, and I went over this incredible waterfall and uh, a few of us did. And I ended up in this little alcove next to it and it's beautiful and calm and clear. And when I came up for air again, I, um, I could barely move. I was exhausted. I didn't know you could be that exhausted ever. And I tried to swim to the edge and I had um, been a really good swimmer as a kid. I'd taught kids to swim at school. I was um, a champion swimmer at school. But I, could, I couldn't get my body to move and so I tried to get to the edge and there was a massive big log stuck through my life vest and I had to wiggle back into the water and then try and yank it out before I could climb up and then I got pulled out and I was saved. So this being a really good segue into our next question, you're saved, you've broken four ribs and you've got damage to your pancreas and um, probably the, one of the first things that I, I realized uh, when I was diagnosed with diabetes myself, um, and it's almost one of my favorite things when talking to other people living with diabetes, is that everyone has this amazing uh, diagnosis story of what happened to them and how they realized they had it. Um, and it could be anything I've heard of people um, waking up one morning and almost being blind and actually not being able to see because of their sugars. I, I you know, lost six kilos and, and was in hospital three days after playing a game of footy myself, all those kinds of things. I think you probably take the cake for diagnosis <laughs> stories though. So yours is a little bit left of centre because yours wasn't um, that unlike many of us where our pancreas um, decides to essentially attack itself, yours was injured in this yeah. disaster. And the trauma to my body. So I also had a broken leg. Um, my tibia was split in half. I had dislocated jaw. I had soft tissue damage to both of my legs and post-traumatic stress disorder. And the um, when I got home, it was crazy. There was just too many things happening and I was emotional. I had so many different emotions going on. And when I didn't eat, I got very hot and shaky and couldn't quite basically I was having a hypo but I didn't know that and I was getting very angry and I thought that the anger was because of everything that else was was going on and I couldn't stop drinking apricot nectar (laughs) of all the things to drink I was obsessed with apricot nectar it was the only thing that would quench my thirst because I was so thirsty and I went I'd been to going to the doctor a lot I went to the doctor and she said I think we better just do a a glucose test on you and I passed out in the pathology and then I got a phone call at work on Christmas Eve and it was my doctor saying you have to stop you're about to go into a diabetic coma we're sending an ambulance and you have to go to hospital and I refused an ambulance and got in a taxi and went to hospital. So you've refused an ambulance and got in a taxi. So we're seeing a little theme of not only courageousness and resilience, but probably a little bit of stubbornness yes, that comes along with I'm that. I'm very as good well. at being stubborn. Uh, I think uh, as part, I think it's part of the territory. As I said, I think it, it fits in with resilience. So that was 20 years ago now, in, in 1999. So just before the Y2K bug was ready to ruin the world as we knew it. What what sort of transformation have you seen in your time of being diagnosed with diabetes and um, the treatment and the medical processes then as opposed to what you've got now in the last 20 years? There's been a lot of changes, a lot of different drugs that I've tried, a lot of different insulin types, um, and I've had a lot of hits and a lot of misses in all of that time. And in recent years, I've been advised to go on an insulin pump 
and I resisted going on an insulin pump. There's a bit of that stubbornness coming out again um, for many reasons. One of them in particular was the physical side of it in where what you've got to wear, how it affects you, how do I wear it, where does it go, what's it going to look like, what what happens with all of the cannulas and the everything else. I didn't want things stuck to me. I was very aware of that and I felt very self-conscious and I didn't want to do it. It was bad enough I'd having to have injections all the time and I'd been out at restaurants and having my insulin and people making comments that didn't know that I'm diabetic because they're just ignorant and um, making terrible comments to me in restaurants. So I found that I thought, what's it going to be like if I've got a machine attached to me? Not that I care what other people think in that terms, but it just makes you quite uncomfortable. And um, I I think in the 20 years, one of the biggest things that's been of benefit to me and I probably to many other people is the continuous blood glucose monitors, which have been amazing. So I found that when you're doing your finger pricks, you know, some days it would be 10, 12 more days that I'd be having to test for whatever reason, particularly when I was pregnant. Being pregnant was an absolute nightmare. And uh, so now to have these amazing CGMs, um, whether whichever type you're using, I don't think it matters, but the importance of those, are, it's just incredible what it's done. Technology's really helped diabetes. So you are now on a pump and, and have been for how, how many years? Six months. Six months. Sorry. Oh, so Still you're a very, new. <laughs> a very new, uh, very new conversion Indeed. to the pump. So. I must admit, so I'm personally still um, on injections myself and, and the finger prick. So um, whilst my um, sugars are, are pretty well maintained personally, I'm a bit of a believer in if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Um, but the amount of people I speak to on the pump and all these kinds of things, they speak so highly of it. Um, and that's probably another key message of any time we talk about diabetes is that one thing that works for someone doesn't necessarily work for someone else. And it's all about working out what works for you. But Absolutely. Back to your story of the pump, a lot of your trepidation around it was not so much how it would impact your diabetes, but just socially and how it would almost look from an external point of view. Or was it also a bit of your management stuff as well? Um, probably a bit of both, but definitely there was a component of how do I wear a nice dress to a wedding? What do I do when I want to be intimate with my husband? How does that work when I've got all these things stuck to me? How do I feel like a woman and walk around like a walking hospital basically is what I felt. And um, and it took a while to for me to really appreciate the technology and know, okay, this is what I have to do. And it got to a point over the Christmas this year where um, I had ketoacidosis and I was so incredibly unwell and my endocrinologist said to me, you really need to go on a pump (laughs) in sheer frustration with me. And I was like, okay, you win. But it takes quite a long time. So I, um, and and this was hopefully we'll find it really helpful to our listeners out there. I thought that I would go to my diabetes educator and I'd be handed a pump and I'd go home and hooray, happy days. It took about three months to learn how to use the pump. I was about to say, I'm going to just cut in very quickly (laughs) up. I have diabetes and my expectation would be that if I was to change from injections to a pump, that's what's happened. I would go to the chemist or whoever one day get this pump and after an hour of setting it up, I'm good to go. But that's not the case. That is not the case, no. 
And so I was quite anxious about that first appointment and my mother-in-law actually drove me because I was like, I don't know how I'm going to be going home in the car and just be really good to have some support. And I walked out and she said, where is it? And I said, I don't get it yet. (laughs) You'll have to come back in three months. (laughs) So there's lots of training. Um, There's government funding. There's um, working with your private health insurance. Uh, There's algorithms to work out. There's liaisons with your diabetes educator and the endocrinologist that you're working with. You've got an entire team. You've also got to go and see a dietitian. You've got to make sure that your carb counting is exact. And I mean exact. If you don't do carb counting, you can you're in trouble. It's not going to work. Um, so there was lots of – I'd done the Baker IDI um, training years ago um, up at um, the hospital, the Alfred. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one. Um, and um, so I did a, a refresher. I'd always used it, but it was incredibly beneficial. I mean, I've had diabetes a long time now, so I was like, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to do all this. But I actually did need to do all of the training involved to go on the pump. And um, has the pump been – better or worse, it has its moments, but it stopped the nighttime hypos and that was my biggest problem. So I was having hypos three, four nights a week, but I was getting down to about 1.2 and it was to the point where I couldn't move. I couldn't, we tried all, we tried all the different, you know, variations and worked with my insulin and it just didn't seem to matter what I would do. It just kept happening over and over again, and which is why my endocrinologist said, you have to go on this pump. It's going to save your life. And my daughter was tr- helping me. And, you know, I, I, my husband would wake up by me grunting because I couldn't speak, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything, pretty much paralysed. And it's pretty terrifying for your carers. And I didn't want to be in a position. I'm quite a strong, independent woman. I didn't want to be reliant on my children and my husband to help me in those moments, but I realised I really needed it. And now I don't have nighttime hypos anymore. Which is one massive tick to you. Well done, I must say. It's uh, not one of my favourite parts. I'm not a morning person and I can get quite grumpy. So anytime (laughs) I lose out on sleep, Tiffany, I'm not a happy man. Um, But you touched on the importance of that, your carers and your husband and your daughter and the the relief that they must now feel over the last six months now that you're no longer or they're no longer having to worry about this potentially happening to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're all getting better sleep. So everyone's happier. It's had an impact on my entire family. And then not just on my family, but my friends and my extended family. Um, And I didn't really realise until now, probably, um, that it really was impacting everybody as much as it was because it had just become part of our life. You know, 19 years of this is how, this is our life. And um, I mean, I still have bad hypos because sometimes life throws you curveballs and you just don't know and um, that's probably been my biggest challenge on the pump is that uh, sometimes say I know I've got something to do. It's It works really well if you're a very planned person. I'm quite a spontaneous type person and I have to become more planned so I find that a bit challenging but um, if I want to go for a walk I need to make sure that I've planned how long I'm going to walk for or how long I'm going to exercise for. Whereas before I probably wouldn't have done that as much. I would have just done what I needed to do and had less insulin or whatever. Um, but, or eaten a banana or something and then eaten afterwards and I would have managed it okay. Whereas now I need to be far more planned, but I know that I'm not, um, I'm not eating as much. I lost six kilos after going on the pump. It just 
I've only just started to put weight back on again. I actually got too thin. Um, I'm not a big person, so I didn't really have six kilos to lose. Um, Yeah, so I think you also need to be really – the continuous glucose monitoring is amazing because you can work out also your moods. So if I haven't had enough sleep, where I am in my menstrual cycle, um, what's happening in our life, how much stress is going on in my life. Am I scared? So I find um, re- really interesting thing that happened. Uh, I've recently come back from overseas. I went to the 20th anniversary of the Swiss canyoning disaster in Interlaken and my family came with me and we decided that we would spend some time in Europe. And we were at um, a fort in Tuscany and you could go climb up onto the wall of where the archers used to stand and and fight beneath, between the uh, Florence people and the Sienese and Siena. And you could see through the grate. Now, I'm terrified of heights, but I went up and I went up at 9.6. I was like, right, I've got heaps of, I've got heaps of, heaps in me. I'm good to go. And it was only about 250 metres, but I could see through the grate on the top of this wall. By the time I got down, I was 3.8. Wow. And that was because of my fear. So it was. So there's all these other components of life that affect your diabetes, and I had no control over that mm. at all. And um, I found that having that glucose monitor on me all the time means that I, I can prevent hypos from happening and I can prevent highs from happening regardless of what is happening in life in terms of emotional well-being. That's, that is a fascinating story and, and I know firsthand things like adrenaline and how that can impact you from, from playing footy but yeah, I'm sure. certainly didn't know um, the impact that something like fear, fear would have on you. You talked about the um, impact a couple of times um, on – Diabetes, living with diabetes as a woman, so things like uh, around your menstrual cycle, or, or getting pregnant, or, or simp- simply wanting to, for want of a better word, be, be normal and wear a nice dress, and having yeah. to worry about your pump. Can you elaborate a little bit um, on diabetes and how it affects your life as, as a female? Well, with regards to falling pregnant, you have got to be quite planned. So I spent a good three. Basically, my doctors at the time wouldn't let me fall pregnant um, until I had three months of perfect sugars, perfect, 100% perfect sugars, and that was incredibly difficult. My endocrinologist also told me, he was pretty old school at the time, this was a long time ago, um, that I needed to try and have my children before I turned 30. And as much as I resented him for saying that, he was right. So I had my daughter at 27 and I had my son two days before I turned 30 and the difference in the pregnancies was astronomical. Even in those two years. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, with my son, I had a lot of trouble. I, he was incredibly big when he was born. He was a typical diabetic baby, fat and floppy. He was in ICU for a few days. His sugar levels were going out of control and he's still a really big boy. And he probably would be a big boy anyway because of the genes that he has. My dad's big and my husband's really tall, so he's got double whammy. But um, it's it has affected him and um, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity and that old school sounding voice to listen to and I chose to have my children before I was 30 because of the advice I'd had. But a lot of women are very successful in having their children later on, but they still need to be planned and they still need to take care of themselves so that they too are healthy throughout the pregnancy and it can cause a lot of problems. There's there's a very good and incredibly terrifying book out there that I called The Red Book of Hell. (laughs) 
Right. <laughs> sounds sounds very welcome. Um, indeed, and it's um, and it's all about pregnancy stories of diabetic women, and unfortunately, it's cur- it's true, it's correct, and um, it can be really scary. So I'm incredibly lucky to have the two children that I do have. I wanted four children. I'm greedy. I like having children. I love being a mother, but um, I just couldn't have any more after I had my son. That was the end of it. I was too sick, and so was he. And, and speaking a little bit. Uh, about your resilience and a bit of stubbornness, the fact that you did want four children, but <laughs> noticing the difference in those the first pregnancy versus your second pregnancy and, and how sick you got mm. must have been pretty bad for you to not be a bit more stubborn and say, no, I'll be fine, I want more. Definitely. And um, my father-in-law is actually a minister and he called me, um, my son was about two months old, and he called me out of the blue one day, which was very unusual. I don't actually think he'd ever called me to speak to me before. And... Um, he rang to tell me about a funeral he'd just done for family and it was for a young girl who'd had a two-year-old and uh, he thought that she died in a car accident or something. So when he went to meet the family, he wasn't quite sure of the circumstances and she died um, from a heart attack from the pressure on her body and she was type 1 diabetic. Right. And I knew that that was, I could not have any more. Yep. And my heart just bled for that poor family and that little boy that was left. Shocking. Shocking. Yeah, it's really sad. So you've got to be really conscious and really aware and Going and that was another reason that I went on the pump was because it's give. I know that it's going to have helped extend my life. And how lucky am I to have that? Yeah. How lucky am I to be alive after everything I've been through? I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful. And that's why I wrote my book um, called Brave Enough Now because I wanted, I wanted to help people. I wanted people to know that you can even though when life brings you the most traumatic or the hardest times in your life, you can actually move forward. And with the right help and perseverance and resilience and the right mindset and a positive attitude and good support around you, you can really make a difference in your own life and in the lives of others and you can be brave and courageous and strong. And if I can do it, then I figure that anybody else can do it too. 100% mm. totally and totally agree with your message. And it, so the book has just been released. It's only been launched in the last month or so. And yes. as you said, it is called Brave Enough Now. So um, on top of that, I did mention at the top that you are also a public and motivational speaker. So yes. uh, before we finish up, if you just want to talk us through, you know, we obviously all want people to go out and buy the book, so we can't tell too much about <laughs> what's in it, but um, the message that's in that uh, and, and when you do do your talking, um, exactly what you're getting across to, to people. Yeah, just to be out there and living your best life, whatever that looks like for you. So, and being present and enjoying every moment in every day. So when I do a lot of my public speaking and keynote talking, I talk about, um, I do talk about living with diabetes and, and as a woman living with diabetes and the challenges that we face as women, um, whether or not, you know, you can wear the dress, you can wear the dress. And there are some designers out there that make dresses for pumps and you can hide them. <laughs> not that, it, not that it matters, but if you feel self-conscious, um, there are options, which is fantastic that we have those opportunities in front of us. Um, I also talk about resilience and the importance of believing in yourself. And I also talk about um, the tragedy and moving forward through post-traumatic stress disorder as well, and that we can do that. And all of those topics that I talk about, I talk about living our best and bravest life. Yeah. Which is a great, a great message. And yeah. it's probably a great note to finish up on, I would imagine, Tiffany. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation and 
I could ask you a million more questions about everything and be talking for another another few hours. But I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and your message. It, as I said, it certainly is one of courageousness, resilience, a little bit of stubbornness, but um, the positive attitude that you convey and you're such a positive person, you're bubbly and you're warm and you're welcoming. And uh, it's the idea of this podcast to just you know, share people's stories and continue to build the diabetes network and community is exactly what we're trying to get out of it. So I really thank you for coming on and being so open and honest about it. Thanks um, for having me. It's been my pleasure. It has been great. I wish you all the best with the book and, and you continue talking and I'm sure uh, we'll be talking with you again shortly. Great. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the program. If you'd like to contact us, it's very easy. Simply send an email to podcast at diabetesvic.org or of course all the information you'll need is on the website diabetesvic.org.au